Hey, this is Michelle Carlo, and this show is Fish Out of Agua! We have some longer stories to read this week, and we have a fantastic guest artist interview I cannot wait to share with you who I was able to snag. And then the interview is running a little bit longer than usual, too. So we're just going to get right into the show this week. We're not going to have a lot of that pop culture reference stuff that we've been having, but no worries. It's 1973 now in Fish Out of Agua Land, and uh, we're going to stay in this year a little bit. So next week, we'll get back to how much of things cost and what we're watching on TV and who was born and who did this. No worries. We'll get right back to that next week. But for now, let's uh, sit back and listen to ABC by the Jackson 5, a song I really loved back then because we are going to go to school. with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. The next song I'm going to play before we get into our first story is for anyone who ever had a hard time getting what they wanted. Oh my God. So, and it's by somebody who you will recognize as being um, the, what some people call the least talented of their group. And I think that is totally a bunch of hoo-ha, but you will hear this song right now. And it's this is for all the people for whom anything that they wanted in their life did not come easy by Ringo Starr.
that was my favorite beetle, Ringo Starr. And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. The first story that we're going to read is Chapter 18 from Fish Out of Agua, 8 B.C. Your daughter is a very angry little girl, Mrs. Carlo. We don't understand what keeps Michelle from achieving her potential. We have no choice but to put her into a behavior control class. This is what the guidance counselors at Junior High School 127 said to my parents. Because in just six months, I had gone from a special progress SP honors class for gifted kids to sticking lit firecrackers into erasers and throwing them out of a window. When I wasn't throwing actual chairs out the window or cutting class to go write graffiti. My parents were being called into school every other week. But no matter what threat they used, what privilege they took away, I wouldn't listen to them. I wouldn't listen to anyone. I hated that SP class with its stuck-up kids who made fun of you when you got less than a 90% on the test. And I was glad when they threw me out. I was labeled an academic and social failure at the ripe old age of 12 and a half. And now I was in class 8-4. Or as his denizen said with misplaced pride, B.C., Bad class. 8-4 was considered even worse than being in the class 818, which was the real behavior control BC class, where the recent immigrants, borderline slow, several times left back and truly illiterate, were dumped. Some of the kids in 8-4 had been left back twice. Some smoked cigarettes and drank Boone's Farm Wild Mountain in the back of the classroom. Some kids in 8-4 had YD, youth delinquency cards, or even JD, juvenile delinquency cards, which meant that they had been picked up by the cops for shoplifting, trespassing, or truancy. But everyone in that class all ganged up together on the misfit among misfits, a pimply-faced, squeak-voiced, gargantuan bag of uselessness named Pasquale Bellina, otherwise known as Fat Pat the Sewer Rat. This was the same Fat Pat who had bullied me for years in grade school and in my neighborhood playground. The same Fat Pat who had told kids not to play with me, who spit on me. And the same Fat Pat who had called me a spick and named me the speck. I would never know how he ended up in the same class with me, but it was here, in eighth grade, that the tables were finally turned on him. Always heavy, he now wore glasses and had developed acne. And this combination, in a class full of kids from many different neighborhoods, some neighborhoods pretty tough, was lethal. They didn't know Fat Pat from anybody, and they owed no fealty to a self-styled bully in a neighborhood they probably never had been to, and someone who they correctly sensed was as timid and insecure as the kids that he had once terrorized. And this made Fat Pat the class human sacrifice. One morning, he was lured into an empty classroom with a clock bar and Donna Nunzio's teen form bra, and he ended up depanced, with his naked bottom glued to a chair where he stayed, mewling, until the boy's gym teacher, Mr. Glick, finally found him. And no matter how hard Mr. Glick tried to make him say who had done it to him, Fat Pat wouldn't rat which made Mr. Glick so mad, he finally dragged him, chair and all, down the hall to the principal's office. 
But come on, who was Fat Pat going to obey? Some transient, so-called authority figure who was going to be gone in a week? Or the kids who really ran the show, and with whom he would have to deal for the rest of the school year? All over TV that year, on the radio and in the newspapers, were the death rattles of what had once been the revolution. Nixon had promised to end the Vietnam War, and the hippies, they had run out of things to protest. Some turned to the false peace promised by plentiful and cheap heroin. Some put their energies into other causes, such as gay liberation, women's lib, or the environment. Others would become moonies, or end up in Jonestown. But in our little corner of junior high school 127, the spirit of anarchy still ruled. Not that any of us really knew what that meant. But when the moratorium happened, that nationwide demonstration where all the high school kids across the country walked out of school with black armbands on to protest the Vietnam War, we were in fourth grade, and I remember getting up and we all went by the windows just staring at the teenagers with their draggly um, dungarees and their black armbands until the teacher called us back to our seats and said, there's nothing to see here. And now, three and a half years later, when Darlinda and I throw a window pole like a javelin out of our classroom's second floor window, we had no idea that we were, in essence, rebelling against authority, too. Huh. And speaking of authority, almost every other week we'd have a new teacher who'd do absolutely nothing but stand at the front of the room, frozen-faced, p- praying for the bell to ring. Or a teacher who'd spend the day yelling at the top of his or her lungs and was lucky if nothing worse happened to them than getting hit on the head with a lit cigarette butt. But there was one teacher, though, Mrs. Golden, who lasted almost a month. And just from the sheer fact that she had stuck it out for that long, she was right at the cusp of getting everyone's respect. But then Joey LaMonica and David Stein jerked off on her chair one morning and she didn't notice it until she sat down, felt it, and sprang right back up. And when all the kids saw the wet spot on the back of her dress, they started calling her crotch rot, singing it in unison to the tune of the old Wonderama song, Does Anybody Here Have an Aardvark? Anybody here have a crotch rot? Anybody here have a crotch rot? Everyone here has a right and left ear, but only Mrs. Golden has a crotch rot. Poor Mrs. Golden ran from the room and never came back. Such complete and utter sociopathic disregard, disrespect, and depravity depravity from those whose bosoms had barely sprouted and whose balls had barely dropped was incredible. The collective adrenaline rush that came from knowing you had even one small part in contributing to a breakdown, it was truly addictive. Perhaps this is what it was like, what it felt like to be a gladiator. Oh yes, this class was an arena and I loved it because 8-4 was a place that I felt I could truly belong. There were, there was Mabel and Neethi who came from the Bronx River Projects and who were fascinated by my thick frizzy hair. They'd pet it and braid it and say, look, it's almost like ours. I accepted their caresses because some kids said that Mabel kept a razor blade in her afro. And even though I didn't really agree with them, I just smiled and said, thank you. And then there was Linda and Antoinette, identical twins from the Italian part of Morris Park Avenue, who were in B.C. for their second tour of duty. 
they compared my freckles with theirs and said, Look, they're almost like ours. And then they told me how on their last summer vacation they had both gotten eaten by the same boy at the same time. Now, they were almost fifteen. I was twelve and a half, still surreptitiously playing with Barbie dolls, and I had no idea what they were talking about. And I remembered what happened to Fat Pat, though. So I just smiled and said, Oh, cool. Oh, no, 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 I mean outrageous. And even though, once again, I was almost like everybody, but exactly like nobody, I still felt that I had found a home. And the thing that drove all the teachers, guidance counselors, and parents crazy was that some of us were really smart. And even among those that had YD cards, there were several at college reading levels, and some other kids, even though they were left back twice, had math or music gifts. And still others, like Darlinda and me, we spent our days drawing. Well, when we weren't out playing hooky and tagging the trains. Were we bad seeds? Misunderstood? Simply bored? Today they'd just make up an acronym, wring their hands, and throw some Adderall at us. But the guidance counselors were right. I was a very angry little girl. My mother still spent much of her days and nights screaming out of a window. My father was still always working. My brother, he was still just a kid. I didn't have a lot of friends besides Dorlinda. And to make it worse, I was overweight and I was ugly. And to make it even worse, I was smart. Smart enough to know all of this, but not yet smart or mature enough to know how to fix any of it. Soon after New Year's, the tests came. The specialized high school admission tests, otherwise known back then as the co-ops. These were tests for the special high schools such as Stuyvesant, Brooklyn Tech, Fashion Industries, the High School of Performing Arts, what would later be known as the Fame School, the Bronx High School of Science, and the High School of Art and Design, otherwise known as A&D. Now, Dorlinda and I, who had been blood sisters since the second grade, made another pact. We were going to go to the High School of Art and Design and get famous doing comic books together. And then we would find cute boys and get married and make more comic books while the cute boys stayed home and took care of our babies. And of course we thought that could happen. I mean, come on, this was 1973, probably the last year people really believed any type of utopia was possible. But back then, the test for each school was on one day and one day only. I had already taken the test for Bronx High School of Science because my parents made me, but I was going to take the test for art and design because I wanted to. And I lay in bed at night imagining being all grown up with a house full of drawings and people telling me how good they were. The night before the test, I made sure my manila envelope of cartoons, fashion designs, and graffiti tags was right next to my bed. But I couldn't sleep that night. Oh, well, not because of nerves, but because my brother Kevin had the mumps, as almost did his entire fourth grade class that week. His fever was very high, and he moaned and cried all night while my mother stayed up with him. It was really sad, and I feel sorry for him now. But then? It just made me, guess what? Angry! Urgh. How dare he be sick and ruin the night before the most important day of my life! Because if I missed that test for whatever reason, any reason, there would be no makeup. 
In the morning, I woke up, not feeling so well. I went to the bathroom, threw up, and looked in the mirror. The entire right side of my face and neck looked like I had swallowed a lemon that had gotten stuck. My forehead burned, but I was freezing cold, and I didn't need to be Marcus Welby, M.D., to know that I had caught the mumps. But nothing, though, nothing was going to stop me from taking the test for art and design. Nothing was going to stop me from becoming an artist. I got dressed and went to Kevin's side of the room, and I threw open the window. It had snowed some during the night, but I figured well, going down the fire escape wouldn't be so bad if I was careful. So what if it was five flights up and slippery? I'd walk down subway tracks, and the rest of my life was at stake today. I started out the window and Kevin stirred. Shh, I said. You gave me mumps and I hate you. You can't climb out the window, Michelle. Mommy's going to catch you. Well, shut up, doofus. It's all your fault. I almost had gotten down to the fourth floor when I realized I had forgotten to take the manila envelope. And as I climbed back into the still open window, Kevin started yelling, Ma, Ma, Michelle's coming out the window, Ma! And I ran back in got the envelope, smacked Kevin on the mumpy side of his head with it to shut him up, which of course only made him yell louder, and I made a desperate swing back to the window and was caught by my father's iron fists. Only the manila envelope was successful in its escape, and I watched my shattered dreams flutter five flights down to the alley below, coming to rest on an already yellow-stained patch of snow. That spring, Dorlinda found out that she had made the High School of Art and Design. And then Dorlinda and I both found out that we had made the Bronx High School of Science, along with two kids from my old class, the SPs. So, two kids from just about the worst class in our junior high school had been accepted to the city's two best high schools. Dorlinda, of course, chose the High School of Art and Design and would go there that September. My father wanted me to go to Bronx Science, even though it was two bus transfers and an hour and a half ride away. Getting into such a prestigious school must have made him and my mother really proud, but I didn't care. I didn't want to go to Bronx Science. I wanted to be an artist, not a scientist. I wanted to draw, not do math. And I told my parents that if I couldn't go to the High School of Art and Design, I wasn't going anywhere. And nothing they said or threatened me with could make me change my mind. I didn't yell or throw things or make any kind of a scene. I just refused. So I had turned from anarchy and be had become a conscientious objector. Only the transformation didn't last very long. Three days later, I was sitting on a bench in the 43rd precinct, waiting for my father to come get me. I had been out tagging with some new writers I had met, and they had asked if I would be their lookout while they tagged the Glebe Avenue Library, and then they'd look out for me. I stupidly said yes, because when it was my turn to tag, they all disappeared, and I was caught. The cops put me into the back of their car. There was a mesh gate between the driver's and passenger seats and no handles for the doors or windows, but that didn't frighten me. They took me into the precinct, sat me on a bench in the hall, and asked me my name, my parents' names, where I lived, and my phone number. I told them everything, but that didn't frighten me. They left me there on the bench and went to a desk nearby to call my parents. 
The hall stank. The walls were puke green and the floor had grimy tiles. The bench was hard and dirty and covered with carved names and scrawled tags. I wanted to add to it with my mop, the pilot marker I had converted by picking apart the nib until it was a mass of strings, therefore the name mop, which I had then filled with fresh ink. I went into my pocket for the marker, but remembered that, of course, the cops had taken it. But that still hadn't frightened me. I, I wasn't handcuffed or otherwise restrained, so I guess I could have tried to escape. And if I was more hardcore, I probably would have. But the fact was, Shell was a toy. So I stayed put. After a little bit, one of the cops brought me a paper cup of cold tea and a bologna sandwich with mold on it. I was hungry, so I took it. But as soon as I saw the mold, I dropped the sandwich, and then the cop said to me, You better get used to it, because this is all you get to eat in jail. That was what finally scared me, and I started crying, bawling, screaming, like weeping, and if that officer is still alive, he must still be laughing about that today. Like I said, Shell was a toy. My father came to the precinct furious. He told me I was lucky that they hadn't given me a YD card and put me in Spofford, the Bronx detention home. He asked me, why had I done this? Why did I need to break his heart like this? He asked me, what did he need to do for me to behave? What did I need? What did I need? I needed not to be me. But of course, I didn't know that. And so... Of course, I didn't say that. When June came, I found out academic excellence had outweighed antisocial behavior, and in September, I'd be back to quasi-respectability in a solid, normal ninth grade class. The revolution may have been over, but in my little corner of the Bronx, I continued my rebellion. I was still a very angry little girl who was determined to be an artist somehow. I just didn't know why. Or how. And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now it's time for our guest artist interview of the week. Someone who I was so lucky to snatch, snag for this interview. After I had seen her wonderful news hour of stand-up at Union Hall just this past week. And without any further ado, here we go with Fish Out of Agua featuring Desiree Birch. Hi, and we're back with uh, Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. We had a little pre-talk, and I swore that I knew her from back in, at the turn of the century in the surf reality days, because I think all the cool people that I ever met came from back then. <laughs> but no, she definitely reminded me that it was in the very early aughts, and we first um, met when we were performing together at a show that she devised called Smut at the original Galapagos space in Williamsburg before it was Billy Berg. This woman, I, like when I grow up, I want to be her. She's done so many things and achieved so much, and she doesn't even live in New York anymore. Oh, my God. <laughs> so please welcome uh, Fresh Out of Agua's guest artist, Desiree Birch. Desiree. Oh, thank you so much, Michelle. Yeah, actually, I should give credit where credit's due. Travis Chamberlain actually created the show Smut. He oh, just okay. needed a host. Ah. And so that's where I came on to okay. host and cure. It. But yeah, I'm glad that I uh, come across as having an old soul and you think that I uh, came from the days before. I actually yeah. moved here in 2001 and Smut wasn't until 2004, I think, or wow. five. So yeah. Yeah, my Karma Fungo days. Yes, absolutely. Yes. You knew me when I was the Latin lady with stuff on my head. 
<laughs> what, you're still not? Uh, well, she's kind of semi-retired. Okay. Yeah. All right, yeah. fair yeah. enough. Um, for now. Yeah, for now. It's all for now. Yeah, it's been nice being back here in New York and remembering why I miss it. So Desiree was in New York because she did the, one of the most fantastic shows I have oh, ever seen so at Union Hall in Brooklyn last night. Tell us a little bit about that show and uh, what got you to this point and what have you been doing in London and everything. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, that show uh, was called This Is Evolution. It was my first stand-up hour. Uh, it's as I'm a solo performer and, and sort of came up as a, a solo theater maker, uh, it definitely influenced me making an hour of stand-up because that was something that kind of grew up alongside my solo performance career, especially here in New York. Everybody does everything. Everybody does too much, you know. And so, uh, you know, as you get a little older, you kind of want to marry mm. your lives a bit more um, and present something that feels like a cohesive part of yourself to give to the world. So, yeah, I did that show. Um, I developed that show for the Edinburgh Fringe this summer, and so this is only the second time I've had a chance to perform it in America. Um, yeah? Yes. Oh, my God. Exactly. So, so we were, like, we're blessed. Uh, well, I'm glad that you think so. I was uh, blessed to be able to do it here, um, and I was really excited that uh, it... Uh, you know that that I, that I'm still funny in my homeland. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have you haven't gotten an accent yet. I don't know no. how you are at home with the boyfriend, but no. I mean, he always likes to say that I speak a little bit more British uh, when I'm there, when I'm not around Americans. I don't notice it, but you know, I'm trying not to get an ad accent. I don't want to sound like Madonna. But, oh no, please don't. <laughs> this, I don't think there's any way that you ever would. Be before you left New York, I'm going to say like going on two years ago or two and a half years ago. Yeah, yeah, a little over two years ago. You, you doing a lot of solo work. One show that you had, I had seen several different incarnations of was called Tar Baby. Yeah, yeah, that one has uh, grown and changed over many, many iterations of performing well, it. Tell us how it started uh, and what motivated you to create that show and, uh, yeah. Well, I guess you never really, uh, as an artist, I think you always think you're creating something and then you wind up creating the thing that you're actually creating. And when mm -hmm. we uh, set out to create Tar Baby, uh, a good friend of mine, Dan Catroser, who was my co-writer on that show, um, is, you know, he was, he and I thought that, you know, as people who are teaching artists and performers, that we would create a show for, you know, essentially to perform to, you know, students and in libraries and things about like folktale and narrative and personal things. And so really? we set out to do that and to take some sort of like Zora Neale Hurston folktales and blend them in with, you know, uh, my own sort of autobiographical narratives. And uh, the project quickly became about something else, obviously. Wow. Yeah. The game show and the mammy thing and <laughs> all of that stuff. Oh my yeah, God. It, it, it definitely went in a completely different direction, I think, because a lot of the stories that I I was writing about my uh, life and upbringing were very completely immersed in being black in America. And so that was what was coming through all of these stories. And so that sort of determined the new focus. So basically you replaced the folk tales with your own tales. Yeah, pretty much. There's only one point at which we actually talk about the, you know, Tar Baby folk tale. At this point in the show, everything else is really my own sort of... Um, wow. Uh, mythos, I suppose. <laughs> Isn't that funny how that turns out? It's it's like, yeah, it, it's sometimes I think it's like our words have much more weight than for us than someone else's, which is what led me to create solo work, you know, instead of like becoming like a regular actor. Yeah, yeah, I think, I, you know, maybe that's regular sort of the, actor. Regular, regular yeah, yes. Regular. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe it's some of that sort of uh, cult of personality and individualism, or maybe it's the fact that, you know, in order to make live performance, there needs to be a certain amount of immediacy for you as the artist 
and for your audiences to feel. Yeah. And so the best way to do that is to get really personal and get really risky. And that seems, that feels like what's riskier than doing things that are like adaptations. Or, totally. And also know. for us, um, we have to create our own work because there's not about a lot of people that are trying to hire you or me. Yeah, that's absolutely so. And I mean, I think if you're going to do more classical work, you need a lot more uh, infrastructure and support around you and, and grant writing and all those things. And obviously, solo artists can use that as well. But when you create right. your own work, you are the expert on that field. Yes, and you, you become the expert in every freaking field. Yeah, and you can pretty much do it any place you can stand and invite yeah. people to come to. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Um, it's a lot more accessible for artists who need to make things yeah, yeah yeah I know I mean sometimes I think that we just like need to get all of our stories out there all the friggin' time you know and not wait for someone else to well, realize that we're there's here. not enough of our stories out there I think as women of color so yeah. now is the time there may come a time at which you know, the world is flooded with those stories and some other kind of form becomes necessary oh. but it would be lovely to make that time occur a world flooded with women of color yes and <laughs> flooded. oh my god drowning in binders women of color. and binders, binders. Full of women, women of, of color, color. <laughs> just blowing in the wind. Yes. Oh my God, that is just such a funny, 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 but funny visual <laughs> image there. Yeah. I mean, to give to give this interview a little bit of context, uh, the the president elect was on TV today saying about I don't go to bed with Russians or whatever the hell he was saying. I couldn't. Everyone, oh. everyone at the job was listening, and I was like, I'm I got, impressed I got that you do. can listen. I I didn't listen. It, I, I saw of, it and I walked away. Yeah, I, I like, kind I of am like, well, you know, that even. is what uh, newspapers and other coverage are for to like let yeah. me know what happened, and yeah. it's very hard yeah. to. No. Be anywhere remotely in the presence no, of that human. No, I, I just, I just couldn't, couldn't, can't deal. Well, anyway, enough of that. Okay, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, we will have uh, so much more of that one, to come. Um, one thing <laughs> that I noticed in in the show that you did last night. Um, of course, you're talking about being black. You're yeah. talking about your size. Absolutely. And one thing that you also mentioned a lot, which I noticed, was your age. Yeah. And I was, and, and, and listen, girlfriend's young. All right. I think that like, I, like I'm a. I'm a and never mind. I'm a sprinkle of years older. <laughs> Just but a sprinkle. It, but it, 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 yes. was, it was really interesting to hear. Um, and you didn't even have a zero milestone birthday. Is there like was there any reason why that? Oh, I'm, we're not, well, we, don't, we don't have to say how old you are. You want? Yeah, to, but, no. But, I but, think but, that they, there's, there's a lot. I think that I don't know. That. Some of it maybe is a late thirties thing. Of I don't know that that uh, benchmark keeps moving, mm. moving further and further back. But uh, kissing there, forty. Yes. Yeah. There, but there is a certain amount of. Um, you know, in the title uh, itself, and just, you know, it's something that I want to achieve. Like, mm. it's a lot of it was meant to be about change and what is required to change or adapt or to move on yes. from old habits and old patterns and, you know, and to become the person you think that you are or should be or hope that you are. And I think a lot of that starts to stick in your 30s where you realize that there are certain things that can change and certain things that can't anymore and you don't quite know and you haven't yet actually become that, you know, big winged butterfly you always thought you were going to be as an adult, but you have the number there to prove that you are supposed to be. And, you know, uh, lots of choices need to be made in order for you to kind of focus and move forward. And I think that I've been focused on that for the past few years. And so the show was not only a retrospective of uh, quite a bit of the comedy that I've developed over the years, but also um, focusing on like how 
I get unstuck from an identity that's been mm. built up like a, you know, like a skyscraper that exists right. and that is recognized and that is yeah. supported by the, you know, the eyes and opinions and ideas of other people that I know. And that sometimes just makes you kind of want to scream and want to run away. I think that we all get to that point sometimes where we completely want to run away from our lives and ourselves. And underneath that, I think, is a you know, a desire for like, you know, there's something truer that I'm missing out on mm. that I want to home in on. And there's something about the way that I live now that's distracting me from that. So I'm still investigating those things and uh, believing that sharing them with people is healing for all of us. And so very well articulated, because I can tell you from my standpoint, I'm a, a little north of 50. No and, way. Well, you know, black don't no crack, way. brown don't frown, beige don't age, <laughs> beige don't age, and Puerto Ricans no creaking. All right? Sorry. Sorry. Ah. It's the truth. You, oh, you didn't even know. No, oh my I God. didn't. That's beautiful. But, but anyway, you know, it, it, some people don't ever get to the point where you are ever. Like, I, yes, I went through yeah, that. You, that yeah. I, I went through all You've, that evolution yeah, my, myself with, with my work that I've been doing. Jesus freaking Christ. I started doing this in 1996. The 21st year. Hey, That's I'm amazing. legal. I can yeah. drink now. Yeah, Your career can get wasted. <laughs> oh, my God. But, you know, the other thing is, like, trying. The, the other thing that I noticed in, in what you did last night was, like, also being out of the box of where society is going to put you. Like, for me, it's like, oh, I have to be, and also because I'm a redhead, it's mm -hmm. like, I have to be the fiery Latina. I have to yeah, be the fiery course. Puerto Rican. And then, of course, you have that whole controversy over what Sofia Vergara did at the Golden Globes, where she basically charred herself. Yeah, wait, I didn't term. see. Oh, she's basically just, like, you know, used her accent, and mm -hmm. she played dumb, and she, and she made an off-color joke, and there was a lot of backlash. I mean, people were just like, why? 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 I mean, does she, did she play it more than she like it sounds like she did that more than she normally does you I know don't like know. it's hard to know you know like if that's authentic or if that is something that right. works for her and I'm I, not sure I don't follow her career to be honest yeah. so I don't know um, I would tend to think it was the latter of what you said. Yeah. That is just that's just a persona that she huh. that just works for her. Yeah. But it's like why does there always have to be another Charo? You yeah. know what I mean? Like, you are yeah, a, why were those you, 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 you're a big, empty. beautiful black woman. Like, I mean, like, there, yeah. there's a pressure. So there are no, another room for you? Why did? Why do you have to be that? Why can't yeah. you just be Desiree? Why can't I just be Michelle? And the fact that we're black and we're Latin is just secondary to that we're artists. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you which know. Is, which is not to negate our, our pride and our identity. No. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but, I, you know, even last night in the show, I feel like, you know, I talk about the way that other people see you. And I think that a lot of times we are painfully aware of how other people see us and we are rewarded when we play into those. Yes. Things, you know, Ideal. and it's sometimes hard to turn down the potential rewards of playing into that for people mm -hmm. and giving them what they want so that you can get what you want from them, you know? And so yeah. perhaps that is driving things like that to happen as opposed to sometimes when you're like, but I just like, if you're good at playing into it, I can see how it would be irresistible. The only, well, not the only reason, but one of the main reasons that people don't play into it is because, you know, they can't, right? Like right. there's something about them that's just like, I can't do it. Like I just, you know, sometimes that's integrity, but sometimes yeah. it's actually just like, I actually am not the thing that I seem. So like trying to do that just feels false and doesn't get me anywhere. So I'm just going to do what I, what I am because I don't, 
don't really have any other choices, you right. know? And there are some people who are in that, the sort of hinterlands of being able to do it, you know? And I can see why it would be, you know, capitalism states that, like, sure. that would be advantageous. Go for it. Yeah, you and, know, if that's, it. and if that's your moneymaker, I could understand why you would be loath to not do the moneymaker. But then again, yeah. I guess it's because I don't got money. I would think yeah. that once you got the money, then you don't that have you to, have. that you have it, and then now you could, like, do something else but with Mike yourself. Mike, mo money, it. mo problems, right? Like, you I know, guess. then you get on a treadmill, yeah. then you're in a certain realm of expectation of, you know, yeah. being able to do that same thing over and over again. So it's good to start out early with your ideals and your sense of self if you can. So tell us where, what's up next for Des DeRay. Oh, well. I just I, love saying that, Des DeRay. Yeah. I mean, I go back to London tonight and I'm doing some things for Tonight, people, there. she yes. came here for the fish out of Agua audience. Yes, I because did. Because she loved me. Yeah, I do. I adore you. Don't kiss me, this way. <laughs> so yeah, so I get back, do the, there's some like, you know, uh, script writing things for like TV shorts and other things like that and touring the show a little bit more in the UK until I get a chance to come back. Cool. Do you know when you'll be back? I have no idea yet, but I will let you know as soon as I do. Okay. Maybe in the spring when oh, my visa th renews. That would be lovely. You yeah. know, one thing that I'd miss is that um, the lovely brunches that we had yes. in, in, in Astoria. Yes, with, I was with thinking your, with your last roommate, night. With your roommate who was going out with my, fr with my, yes, with my friend. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I really want to have another pancake brunch. That Pancakes I and Bloody Marys. Yes, I will have to find someone with a nice big living room who will let me cook all afternoon. All right, so if you have one thing to say to people um, uh, listening to Fish Out of Agua, Radio Fruit Brooklyn, what would that be? Um, figure out who you are now because no one's going to accept it later. So. And don't wait till you're 37 or 55. <laughs> really don't. All right, signing off. Woo! And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Yeah, kids do change a lot in junior high school, what they now call middle school, especially between 8th and ninth grade, because ninth grade is, is high school, and that's kind of like significant. And even if you're not really physically or mentally all that different between the last day of 8th grade and the first day of ninth grade, there still is a massive change that you just feel, like this cosmic shift that you're going into a different place. And one of the things that shifted with me was um, music. And one of the bands that I first started to get into was this one, Black Sabbath.
And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. And this story is Chapter 19, When the Wizard Walked By. I later learned that Darlinda had had her own run-in with the law, coincidentally, the day after mine. There had been an after-school incident on the number 36 bus, resulting in a police action where the bus was sealed off and Darlinda had been nabbed climbing out of a back window. She had kicked the police officer, called him a pig, and was taken to a precinct where her mother and older sister Gigi had to retrieve her, and she hadn't cried one bit. Dorlinda always was more hardcore than I was. And luckily, she didn't get a YD card either. That had all been at the end of eighth grade. In September, Dorlinda and I would be in different schools. And although our relationship would change... We remained friends, and we still tagged together. She, Pistol, and FJC IV took me to the underground layups at New Lots Avenue, where I produced my one and only passable masterpiece, and although I didn't know it at the time, one of my last. And Dolinda and I became crazy Mets fans. We played hooky to sneak into Shea Stadium and cheered from the empty box seats during the entire dismal Nino Espinosa, Dave Kingman, Joel Youngblood, Lee Mazzilli era. Dolinda and I even stayed in touch after high school when she joined the Army, became a communications specialist, and traveled the world. We were in each other's weddings, and twice a year, on birthdays and Christmas, there was always a card saying, Miss you. So, that much of being a blood sister did come true. But it would never again be the same as it was when we were in the same school together and saw each other every day. And as was or is natural for kids of our age, going on 13, we, or at least I, developed other interests. I had never seen Darlinda much in the summers between grades anyway, and slowly had become friends with Janie, Nicole, now Nikki, with double hearts over the eyes, and Dawn, whom I had met in St. Peter's Park playing jump rope years before. Nikki and I had become the closest, and I now considered her my second best friend, after Dorlinda. Nikki Cleary lived with her mother, grandmother, and two older brothers in a big ground-floor apartment a couple of blocks from the park. She was half Irish and half Italian, and her Italian grandmother, Nana, who lived with them, used to make us pizza bread when I would go over there after school. Nikki's and my birthday were only three days apart, and although she was a year older than I was, we were in the same grade since I had been skipped back in grade school. Nikki and I had a secret we didn't tell Janie, Dawn, or anyone. We would sometimes play Barbie dolls together, even though we were way too old. Nikki had just graduated from Sacred Heart, a neighborhood Catholic school in a neighborhood that had four Catholic schools, and she would be going into ninth grade at St. Catherine's Academy in September. I, too, would soon be in ninth grade, but every once in a while, we would take out her collection of Barbies, Skippers, and Kens, and we'd play. But instead of playing the dress-up or house games we would have played even two years before, now we cut off Barbie and Skipper's hair, took off all their clothes, drew in their bodies with magic markers, and mashed them up and down on Ken and each other. We called this game banging, or having sex, which, of course, we could both only guess at what that actually entailed. 
Perhaps Nikki's oldest brother, Ralphie, influenced us. Ralphie was 18 and just out of high school. His birthday had been one of the first called in the last Vietnam War draft lottery, and even though that had been two years before and the war had ended, so of course he hadn't gone, he remembered it and celebrated it any way he could by locking himself in his bedroom with his girlfriend Cheryl, playing albums, smoking pot, and having sex. Lots of it. Nikki and I didn't know what actual sex looked like, but we knew what it sounded like. Nikki's mother would be at work. Nana would be either cooking or sleeping. Nikki's other brother, Scotty, who was 16, would be in his room, smoking pot also and playing albums, sadly for him, no girlfriend at the time. And Nikki and I would be sitting in the hall between them, breathing and listening. And in between the smoke, squeaks, and moans came a life-defining moment. Scotty liked hippie music and played a lot of the Grateful Dead and the Eagles, both of whom we hated. Ralphie liked hard rock and played Jimi Hendrix, Cream, Led Zeppelin, and Black Sabbath. We always took our Barbies closer to Ralphie's room whenever we heard Black Sabbath coming from behind his door. I knew all their albums, Black Sabbath, Paranoid, Master of Reality, and Black Sabbath Volume 4, our favorite. Nikki liked the song Changes, but I loved Tomorrow's Dream. There was just something about that song. Whenever I closed my eyes, it took me to a place I couldn't describe but wanted to stay. And maybe it was just a contact high from breathing in all that secondhand smoke, but every time I went to Nikki's house, I hoped Ralphie would play that album. One afternoon, Ralphie and Cheryl ran into the apartment screaming, We got tickets! We're going to see Black Sabbath! Nikki and I had been camped outside Ralphie's door for a half an hour waiting for the music to start. Neither one of us had thought he wouldn't be there, and we didn't know he and Cheryl had gone to Ticketmaster to get Black Sabbath tickets. I didn't even know you could actually go and see them play. But Nikki did. Michelle and I want to come, she said. Are you nuts? Ralphie jeered. Yeah, I got four tickets, but no way am I taking you or your stupid friend. Oh, yes, you are, or you're not going. That was Ralphie, Scotty, and Nikki's mother, Peggy, or Mrs. Cleary, who had come home from work early and walked in right behind them. She worked very, very hard as a single parent raising her three children, and she believed that they should do things together, perhaps to make up for the fact that she couldn't always be around. That the last thing her 18-year-old son wanted to do was take his 13-year-old sister to a rock concert never crossed her mind. Or perhaps it did. But ma, Ralphie whined, we're going to take James and Terry. Where is this concert? Let me see the ticket. Ralphie handed it to her. Oh, Nassau Coliseum? Out on Long Island? You are definitely taking Nikki, or you are not going. I can only imagine that Mrs. Cleary's motive for glomming us onto Ralphie and Cheryl was to hope that by tagging along we would act as reverse chaperones and would keep them from getting into more trouble than they might have otherwise. Now, of course, Ralphie, being 18, technically didn't have to listen to his mother. He could have told her to fuck off and done what he wanted. But Ralphie was a bit of a mama's boy. He was the oldest and therefore the man of the house. He also wasn't stupid. He lived rent-free, even though he did have a job at the Hess station. He had Italian home cooking, had his laundry done, and had the use of his mother's car. 
and the Nassau Coliseum wasn't easy to get to without one. Like I said, Ralphie wasn't stupid. The concert was months away, and he would figure out a way to get out of having to take us. Okay, he said. Sure, Ma. Nicky can come. As Nicky jumped up and down whooping, Mrs. Cleary asked, Michelle, would you like to go too? Would I? Go to a real rock concert to see my favorite band in the world? Hear my favorite song in the world with my new best friend in the world? Would I? The question really was, could I? Um, I don't know. Well, let me call your mother and ask her. It's not that far. She'd be home by 11. Mrs. Cleary went right to the phone and called my mother, who incredibly said yes. I couldn't believe my mother was actually going to let me go. I don't know what she was thinking. Maybe she was like Ralphie and thought, well, I'll just say yes and then she'll forget about it. My mother didn't know what Black Sabbath was. How could she? She wasn't there sitting outside of Ralphie's door. The months passed. Nikki and I went into our respective ninth grades and stayed friends. And as it turned out, Mrs. Cleary didn't forget about the concert. And neither did I. I was lucky. The only reason I got to go at all was that the concert had first been canceled and then rescheduled and was now on a Friday instead of a school night. When Ralphie, Nikki, and Cheryl came to pick me up, I didn't even recognize Nikki. Her hair was pinkish and broken and hadn't been like that the day before. She told me she had wanted to bleach the front blonde for the concert, but her mother had said she was only 14 and too young to dye her hair. So Nikki dunked her bangs in Clorox instead. The entire way to Long Island, Nikki and I sit-jumped up and down in the back seat of Mrs. Cleary's Buick station wagon, saying, We're going to see Black Sabbath! We're going to see Black Sabbath! And Ralphie turned around, told us to shut the fuck up, and said that if we went anywhere near him, once we got to the Coliseum, he would murder us. And Cheryl turned around and said, Yeah! And as soon as we got there, he gave us our tickets, and he flat-left us right outside the concert hall doors. Our tickets were way up in the top section, and as Nikki and I made our way upstairs and more stairs, I noticed three things. One was that nearly everyone was smoking, even the ushers. And some of those cigarettes smelled like what came out from Ralphie's door when his mother wasn't home. Two, Nikki and I were the basically the only two people who were actually walking, because it seemed everyone else was either bouncing off the walls or stumbling. And three... Nikki had taken her coat off. She was wearing a white halter top, even though A, it was still winter, and B, she was a skinny stick who really didn't have anything on top to show at all. But that halter top and her pink hair got us a lot of attention. Then all of a sudden, people started offering us stuff. Regular cigarettes, funny cigarettes, and things I knew were pills. And I was like, oh, no, 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 thank you. I'm, I'm 13. But Nikki grabbed them all. We saw a boy who was passed out on the floor with his zipper open and clutching a bottle of blackberry brandy. Nikki ran up to him, snatched the bottle out of his hands, and we ran to our seats with it. I couldn't see a thing. The arena was just one huge drift of smoke, and the glow from people flicking lighters and striking matches was everywhere you looked. I stood there, watching the brief flashes of light which kind of put me into a trance. Nikki passed me the bottle of blackberry brandy. I took a sip and spit it out. It was nasty. Hey, don't waste it, Nikki said, and took it back. And then, 
I heard it. My favorite song in the world, Tomorrow's Dream. And it was nothing like hearing it outside of Ralphie's door or in the car on the way to the concert. Th that guitar, I could feel it behind my eyes, inside my head, my heart, and my stomach. And Ozzy Osbourne's voice, high-pitched, yet aiming low straight into the one place on my body I hadn't really begun to think about yet because I was still only 13. I closed my eyes and swayed to the song until Nikki poked me. She decided that we needed to get down to the bottom, nearer to the stage, so we started sneaking our way all the way back down to the ground floor. It took a while, but we finally did get to the bottom, only we couldn't get near to the front of the stage, so we decided to go try to go around the back. We ended up wandering into this hallway area where a man was looking into a small plastic bag. He looked up and saw us and called us over, saying, Girls! Girls! Over here! Nikki started going over to him. And then another man, carrying what looked like a cage, which I thought was really strange, came out of another door took one look at skinny Nikki and her halter, another at me and my baby blue pro kids with the jingle bells on them, and said, No, girls, run! Run, girls, run! Run while you can! And I just ran up and grabbed Nikki and dragged her out of the first door that I saw, which unfortunately led us to outside of the Coliseum, and we couldn't get back in. We, of course, didn't see the rest of the concert, so we don't know if any animals were harmed during the show. Ozzy did have an infamous <clears throat> bird act around that time. We also didn't get to hear if they played Nikki's favorite song, Changes. But by that time, she wouldn't have noticed, because she was now staggering like the kids we'd seen at the beginning of the night and was basically falling asleep standing up. Well, they say God protects drunks, fools, and children, and that night it protected all three, because somehow we ran right into Ralphie and Cheryl right outside the arena right when the concert was over, and if I didn't get home by exactly 11, at least I got home in one piece, which was more than I could say for Nikki. Because when Mrs. Cleary saw the condition Nikki arrived home in, she screamed at Ralphie for not watching us properly. And, for the record, to the best of my knowledge, Ralphie, who was driving, was substance-free that evening. I wouldn't see Nikki again for an entire month. And if Mrs. Cleary, honestly, had known the whole truth, Nikki would have been grounded until she was 18. But I wasn't punished. I saved my allowance for the next couple of weeks, and when I had enough money, I went to the head shop record store in Westchester Square and bought my first whole album, Black Sabbath, Master of Reality, because they were out of Volume 4. And soon, I had a new favorite Black Sabbath song, Sweet Leaf. But I had no idea what they were singing about. Yet. And that's our show. This has been Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. If you like what you've heard, consider sponsoring the show. Just go to the Fish Out of Agua page on Radio Free Brooklyn and press the green button. It's that easy. See you next week.